Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Let's let's remain standing. We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Um, If you don't have a Bible, um, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, And if you want to follow along in that text, it's on page 813. Uh, We very highly recommend uh, you following along in your copy of the scriptures. Thank you, our brother Rick, for reading for us. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The book of Isaiah uh, says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Um, so, so, Lord, as we enter into this time where we, where we have the opportunity to study your, your word, um, see what the scriptures have to say, uh, Lord, we, we acknowledge that um, not every, <laughs> every part of the scriptures are, are necessarily easy to understand. They're not um, easy to comprehend. They're not easy to apply. Um, but you, Father, um, have, have been so gracious in giving us your word, and so we pray that by your spirit, uh, we would, we would um, understand, be attentive, uh, be obedient, and respond um, to what your word has to say. Uh, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you for standing with us. Um, before we get rolling, so we don't have to do this at the end, uh, you know Grace Harbor is a family formed by the gospel on mission together, and so we like to behave as a family, operate as a family, and so... Uh, Madeline, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring you right back up here. Um, Madeline uh, serves week in and week out. We, we did, we did the, the big shebang last week, right? Um, and so we're not going to draw this out very much, but we just want to give you a gift as, as a church. I, I'm, I'm like, you know me, I'm not a good secret keeper. Um, I'm not a good gift because I want to like open this for you, but, and I want to tell you what it is. No, I'm not going to do that. If you want to know what it is, if, church, if you want to know what we gifted to Madeline, um, you, you, yeah, open it. Yeah, it's a journal. And it has, it has your name on it. So uh, this is just a gift from us to you. Uh, Madeline and her parents uh, leave tonight, 5 p.m., right? 5 p.m., headed, headed uh, across the pond. Um, and so uh, we're praying for her, encouraging her. It was such a, a sweet, you can go have a seat. It was a... Uh, it was such a sweet sight this morning to see Sarah uh, just standing with, with Madeline before our service, praying with her. Um, and so maybe before the end of the day, you're, you're able to encourage her, pray with her, pray for her. Obviously, keep her in your prayers as they travel. Um, she's going to get a solid two weeks in Wales before class even starts, right? Um, so just a, what a fun opportunity. Praise, praise God for that. So we are very thankful for Madeline and her family. We're going to sorely miss her over these next six months, but... She will be back, okay? Um, Madeline, if you find a man, he's got to come back here, okay? All right. So 
uh, we're in Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 18 through 22. We're covering a little bit smaller of a section today. Um, I know I've already said this. If you've got a Bible or if you, if you would grab one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, maybe, maybe you have an electronic device, that's totally fine. We just strongly encourage you to follow along there. Uh, but, but we're going to see some interesting things today in this text. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but, but when I was probably, when I was a teenager, I remember reading this passage and thinking, how insensitive is Jesus? Um, how, how out of touch with reality is Jesus? Um, I, I don't necessarily think that anymore, um, though I'll admit, sometimes it's hard to understand exactly what's going on. Uh, but, but I remember a time in my walk with Jesus not fully understanding or able to comprehend what this call to discipleship, what this call to following Jesus really looked like. And so as we looked last week in the opening, uh, oh, look, you already got the points. Thanks, Aiden. Um, There you go. We'll get there in just a little bit. Uh, But in the opening 17 verses of chapter 8, like we discussed last week, we see that Jesus has great authority over sickness, right? These first 17 verses, there's three miracle stories, all Jesus healing sickness and disease. And in today's five verses, verses 18 through 22, we see that Jesus not only has authority over sickness, Jesus has authority over the disciples. Jesus has authority over those who follow him. And and so these five verses, 18 through 22, will teach us and remind us of something very important. In fact, um, if you just if you just take a, a quick snapshot back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus, in a way, has actually addressed some of this cost of following him already when he talks about the, when he talks about the gate and the way, that the, that, the gate is, that the gate is narrow and the way is hard, um, that, that leads to, to life, and that the, the, the way is broad that leads to destruction. And so Jesus is kind of discussing what the nature of following him is all about, and then Matthew brings this section back up, recording what Jesus has said about following him. Namely, just if we can just sum this up real simply, namely that following Jesus is very costly. Following Jesus is is very costly. Um, Church family, the scriptures know nothing of an uncostly faith. Uh, the, the, The scriptures teach nothing of an uncostly faith. An uncostly faith and an uncostly followership of Jesus is extra biblical and unbiblical, and it's a construct. Following Jesus is costly. Jesus, our Lord, tells us that here. And so what this text puts to rest is the idea that Jesus is merely out in the world looking for converts, that he's just looking to to make his next pitch to, to the next person who will hear. No, rather what Jesus is doing throughout the Gospels is he is seeking for himself disciples, people who will count the cost of following Jesus. And so this theme of authority in these two chapters establishes that. I mean, just 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 kind of pull your eyes 40,000 feet up looking at chapters eight and nine, and, and, and we see that these two chapters are establishing the authority of Jesus over all realms of life. Matthew chapter eight and nine tells us that leprosy obeys Jesus. Paralysis obeys Jesus. Fever obeys Jesus. Storms, seas obey Jesus. Demons obey Jesus. Death obeys him. Chronic illness obeys Jesus. Blindness, muteness obeys Jesus. And then in the, at the end of chapter 9, it says that every disease and affliction, Jesus healed. And so the question that we may be faced with in this text today is, disciple, do you? Do you obey Jesus? Do you follow him? Do you count the cost of following Jesus? 
And so Matthew 8 and 9 introduces us to the miraculous works of Jesus and the remarkable call of Jesus. Jesus' works are truly miraculous, aren't they? But his calling on our lives as disciples is remarkable. It's a remarkable, costly. And so what Matthew does through these two chapters is really fascinating. So, so oftentimes we read the scriptures and we kind of, we go to these sections and we just kind of read these sections and we forget that behind the sections of scripture that we have laid out in our Bibles, that there is a, a, a human author. We, we believe in the inspiration of scripture, the authority of scripture, the, 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 the infallibility and the inerrancy of scripture, that we believe that the Holy Spirit is behind the writing, but behind every writing of scripture, there's a, a person that God chose to use to pen his, his holy word. In this case, it's, it's Matthew. So Matthew is, is writing this story, and he's not writing it as, as different little random stories to just try and, hey, which, like an encyclopedia. No, he is recording for us a very intentional, thoughtful narrative of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so we see that. Let me, let me show you something here. What Matthew does through these two chapters is, is really fascinating, and it's intentionally crafted to communicate these things about the authority of Jesus to us. Notice this. We see verses 8, 1 through 17. Look at, look at the book. Verses 1 through 17, we see three miracles of Jesus. And then what do we see? We see a section on, on, on a, uh, that we could call like a warning or a teaching. Three miracles and then a teaching of Jesus in verses 18 to 22. And then what do we see? We see three miracles of Jesus, verses 23 through 9, 8. And then in ver- chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, we see another teaching of Jesus, Three miracles teaching, three miracles teaching, but we're not done yet. We see three more miracles happen in verses 18 through 34 of chapter 9. And then what does the, the, this section end with? It ends with a teaching of Jesus about the harvest, right? And so we, we, we kind of have this, this switch off that Matthew is constructing for us, carefully writing for us that we've got uh, miracles of Jesus and then teachings of Jesus and miracles of Jesus and teachings of Jesus. And so Matthew seems to construct this in such a way for us, almost to discourage any who are tempted to become fanatical of Jesus through his miracles rather than obedient and submissive to him. It really kind of seems like what Matthew's doing is, hey, let me give you these wonderful works of Jesus, and then I'm going to give you these, these marvelous claims of Jesus, just so that in case any of us are, are, are tempted to, to become fanatical of Jesus, become fanboys of Jesus for his, for his miracles and his works, that Matthew's going to always bring us back down and say, hey, let, 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 let me tell you something hard that Jesus said right after this. And so the invitation of our, of our scriptures and of our Lord Jesus is an invitation to follow him, church. The invitation is to count this great cost and to follow him where he leads us. Um, discipleship, one of the ways that the friend of mine put it, discipleship, at least biblical discipleship, is not about you inviting Jesus into your life. If, if it's about some, some kind of life entry, it's not about you inviting Jesus into your life, it's, it's really Jesus inviting you into his way of life. And so we've heard all through, if you've, if you've been in the church very long, invite Jesus into your life, invite Jesus into your life. Can, can that be helpful language? Maybe so, but maybe more biblical to what is going on when we're talking about discipleship is not us inviting Jesus into, into our life, but Jesus inviting us into his way of life. And so Jesus is inviting us into this way of life, and the scriptures will show us that. And this way of life, Jesus admits, the scriptures will admit, is not an easy path, okay? So 
We see uh, these three things. This is where we're at in, in our, in our uh, scriptures. I'm going to grab my, my water here. Sorry about that. So, so we see three components of this call. Uh, we, we see three components of, sorry, the font is so small. Really sorry about that. Like, totally unintentional. I was not making anybody trying to strain their eyes or anything. So I uh, created these slides yesterday, uploaded them to the computer this morning. It's like, wow, that's small, and I don't have time to redo it. So um, three components of this call in verses 18 through 22. Now, remember, we're looking at one section of Scripture here. Um, this is not all that Jesus has to say about discipleship, church, okay? Um, this is not all that the Scriptures share about following Jesus, we're looking at this text today and, and three components of this call to discipleship in this passage of scripture um, are these three things. We see that the call of discipleship of Christ in these verses is a call away from the crowds. Um, secondly, a call to count the cost. And thirdly, a call to commit to him completely. That's, that's what we see of the nature of this call that Jesus gives to these people in this passage. So first of all, we see in verse 18, let's read verse 18 together. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So we see that the nature of this kind of way of life that Jesus is leading and exemplifying for us is first and foremost in this text, a call away from the crowds. So notice what Jesus himself exemplifies about this walk with the Lord that it will often and likely take you away from the crowd. It will often likely take you away from it. So just like we saw at the turn of chapter 7. Remember last week we talked about at the end of chapter 7, the crowds are astonished at the teachings of Jesus. And so Jesus had this moment. He had this captive audience, right? they They are totally locked in to what Jesus is saying. It says that they responded in astonishment because of the authority with which he spoke. And so Jesus has this captive audience where where he could do anything that he wanted. He has their undivided attention going into chapter 8. In that moment, Jesus could have taken these healings that he performs in chapter 8. He could have taken these healings to those in high and noble places. If you had a captive audience, if you were to read a book um, about how to captivate an audience or how to um, capitalize on your success, your past success, and how to, how to get future success. If you were going to look at some books on that, it probably, wouldn't, it probably would not in any, any of those books prescribe what Jesus did here. Because what Jesus did is he didn't take this, this authority that he had, he didn't take this uh, captive audience that he had and then go and start healing people in high and noble places. He didn't start uh, healing kings and, and princes and, and nobles of, and all those people. No, he goes to three unlikely people, a leper, a centurion, which was a Gentile, and a, and, and a mother-in-law of Peter. And he heals those three people rather than healing those which would have been, been in high places. He heals these people who are on the fringes of society and even on the fringe of the faith community. And so Jesus has another one of these moments here. And as we enter into this section of 18 through 22, Jesus has another one of these moments of great potential after he heals three people. So, okay, you're like, Jesus, okay, go heal these, these, these big and high and mighty people. And Jesus is like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna heal the, 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 the lowly. And, and so then people are probably like, okay, fine. You heal the lowly, now you do these healings. Now do something, do, do another trick. Do another trick for us. Go, go do something else. And no, what does it say that Jesus do? The last thing that conventional wisdom would say, he bolts. 
He, 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 tells, he, tells, he says, when Jesus saw the crowd, a crowd around him, what did he do? He gave orders to go over to the other side. He bolts. He gets away. And not only does he bolt, <laughs> but he takes people with him and then starts saying things and responding to things in ways that no modern success book would recommend. He starts saying things where you would say, okay, Jesus, you've got a captive audience here. Say the thing whatever that thing might be, and Jesus doesn't say the thing. Jesus doesn't say the thing that we think he might should say. In fact, one commentator calls Jesus moving away and the difficult teaching that followed these moments um, after his wonderful works. One commentator calls this a patent of the ministry of Jesus. It was just characteristic of his ministry that Jesus would, would, characteristic of his ministry was grand displays of power and authority followed by this wide interest in him and characteristic of Jesus in those moments was not assimilation. <laughs> it wasn't altar calls. Um, he didn't put on membership classes. He wasn't, you know, just join my next membership class or um, here's, here's a... Here's a, here's a, here's a good, good book to read, but most often what would happen is not those things. Most often what would happen is a very difficult and off-putting even, according to our standards, off-putting teaching about what following him really entailed. You can read that for yourself throughout all the Gospels. Look at the amount of times that Jesus has this very large captive audience where he has performed great miracles and said great things and people are, people are, are looking at him, they're attentive, and what does Jesus often do. He pulls away, and he'll kind of take a select group of people, and he'll, he'll tell them something really hard. He'll say, okay, you're interested? All right, here's the hard thing. Here's the, here's the thing that you, that, you, that you need to hear about what following me looks like. And so his, his most radical calls for discipleship came on the heels of time and influence with the crowds. And so, church family, we may be obsessed with crowds. We may be obsessed with crowds, but, but Jesus certainly is not. Jesus, Jesus is not. So, so for us, what does the call away from the crowds look like for us as followers of Jesus? Well, there's, there's really a variety of things. Um, I've got a quote up here uh, by, by Eugene Peterson. Um, sorry, it's so small. You'll just have to listen. Um, it says this, classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence, which is a fancy way of saying religious meaning. Apart from God is revealed through the cross of Jesus, through the ecstasy of alcohol, drugs, through ecstasy of recreational sex, through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn about the drugs, warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. And so there's something important for us here in this moment to, to acknowledge and to realize that, that while we may be drawn to the crowds of, of what's popular in the world, while we may be drawn to the, to the lure of, of, of what is most beneficial for our personal physical satisfaction or whatever that is, that, that we have to realize that some have made, including us at times in the church, have made worldly crowds their identity, made worldly crowds their idol. Some, some have a higher fear of God than of man, or some have a higher fear of man than of God. That's a, that's a, a real issue in our culture today. That we have a, a higher fear of man than of God. This isn't, this isn't novel or a brilliant thing to say, but, but if you follow Jesus faithfully, church, you're going to disagree with the culture on a lot of things, and that's okay. That's, that's, it's right. Um, it's, it's right for us. I know that it's not popular, and you know, we want to we be 
you know, kind of the arguments today is we want to be, we want to be winsome and nuanced and all of those things. And hey, there is, there is, certainly, there is certainly room for us to, to be wise in these ways, but just know that being misunderstood is, is not foreign to the kind of call that Jesus calls us to. Being misunderstood is, is very much part of this thing that Jesus is calling us to in this cost of discipleship as his people. And so there are things that we've made our primary identity that are not our primary identity as followers of Jesus. And I'm not going to get into all those things right now. Uh, but there are things that, that have a higher, uh, that, that, we, that we identify with more um, than identifying ourselves as we are committed followers of Jesus. We're going to say no to the things that the culture wants us to say yes to. And we're, we're, going, we're not going to stand by what we believe in that way. And so there's, there's also ways that we can hide in the crowds of, a, of the church, right? So we hide in the crowds of the world, but there's, there's a way that we hide in the crowds of the church. It's not uncommon for this to be, for, for this right here to be the extent of our walking with Jesus. We come and we join the crowd on Sunday mornings. Um, we, we, we hitch ourselves to the religious activity of the, the crowds at church, but, but we're indifferent and we're uncommitted to who God is calling us to be in our personal lives. We can be passionate and engaged here in the crowds or in the crowds on Facebook, wherever, but silent and refusing to open our mouths or to be in prayer for those who need to hear the hope of the gospel who are just right around us. We've kind of made this place our, our kind of like our Christian incubator where we can come in, we can, we can do our religious activity and, and follow the crowds and then leave here and be relatively unmoved by what the, the, the cost that God is, that Christ is saying that, hey, walking with me will, will, will entail. And so that's an important thing for us to see. So Jesus calls us to follow him by inviting us with him to come away from the crowds. That's what he does in this text. He saw the crowd, he came away, and then he just focuses in on, on, on some things. And so the second thing that we see Jesus uh, uh, acknowledge about um, this, the nature of this discipleship is a call for us to count the cost. A call for us to count the cost. Um, let's read in verses 19 through 20. And a scribe came up to him, uh, came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, over the last year or so, my eyes have been opened as I have had the opportunity to engage more deeply with folks, particularly Christians, from other cultures besides America. Uh, my eyes have been opened over this last year to their understanding of the cost of following Jesus. Um, that, that's, that's really interesting. When you, when you kind of grow up in the American church culture, um, and, and following Jesus is, is as easy as just kind of like the altar call and repeating this prayer after me, and it doesn't really ever cost me anything. Really, we're the only culture, uh, for, for pretty much any Christian I have met from anywhere besides America, there is an immediate felt understanding of the cost of following Jesus, immediately. Um, now, none of these folks from, from other cultures and who've engaged with other cultures who have followed Jesus, they, have they had it all figured out or, or had it all together when they trusted Christ uh, as their Savior? No, of course not. No, they didn't have it fi all figured out. <laughs> they, were, they were an unfinished product in, in one way. 
They were, they were one who Jesus was, had begun a good work in and will bring to completion. So none of these are, are, are um, those who have it all figured out or, or put all together, but they certainly sensed and they certainly took seriously the teaching of the scriptures and the call of God in a way that not many that I have met here understand. I mean, just, just if, if you haven't had an opportunity to, to connect with someone from another culture who has placed their faith in, in Christ, sit and talk with them and just say, what did that look like for you? What did that cost? Not that they had to make any kind of payment to Jesus to save them. No, Jesus paid that for us. But ask them what that cost them in their life. Ask them what crowds they were pulled away from in that moment of trusting Christ as their Savior. Ask them what it cost them over the course of the next several years. And so the scribe in verse 19 here says what he says, but he doesn't understand the cost. He just wants the perks, it seems like. He comes to Jesus and confidently commits to Jesus um, that he will follow Jesus anywhere he goes. That's what the text says. I will follow you wherever you go. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Man, what a great commitment, right? I mean, isn't that the thing that we're trying to get people to do? Um, isn't this what Jesus is looking for? Surely Jesus can work with it. I'm okay, like you're a scribe. I can work with that. So why this response from Jesus? Well, let's, let's understand something a little bit about this person who comes to Jesus. He's a scribe. Um, what is a scribe? A scribe is a, is a scholar. He's a religious leader. Culturally, he's a big deal. Uh, this, this scribe is a, is a big deal. We see by the time that we eat, reach the end of Matthew's gospel, we'll get there someday, I promise. Uh, by, the time that we get to the, by the time that we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, um, what we see is that the scribes and the religious leaders are those who receive the strongest rebuke from Jesus. Jesus rebukes them very, very strongly, very boldly. They, they seem to be only a continual source of conflict for Jesus and his disciples. This constantly causing trouble, constant conflict. But, but as a scholar, this scribe, an educated man, he's a professional in the law, if, if anyone knew what he was getting into, maybe it would be this guy. He even refers Jesus to Jesus respectfully as what? Teacher. He calls, he calls him teacher. Wow, this is, man, we're, like, we're, on a, we're on a good track. This guy's almost there on the surface. This is exactly the kind of guy that Jesus is looking for. I mean, with a couple of, of discipleship classes and Bible studies and, you know, a couple years, surely Jesus can line them out and use them for really great things. But for some reason, Jesus is not buying it. That's what the text tells us. For some reason, Jesus doesn't just jump right in and, and, and capitalize on this guy's, this guy's interest or intrigue. He's not impressed with it. Now, we don't know what all is at play here. We don't know the motive behind the interaction. We, the text doesn't tell us all of those things. But I think, um, based on what the scribe says and how Jesus responds, we can make some safe assumptions. So, so might, it, might it have been what, what likely could have been the case, let, let me just say, remember, I always try to like step over here for just a little bit and say this isn't plain in the text, um, but we do see that there is a very serious interaction between the scribe and then, and then, and then Jesus, and, the, and, and that the, the, the interaction that they have does not quite go the way that many of us would think that, that it would go. And so there are some things that we can understand about the scribes because the scriptures tell us. There are some things that we can understand about the nature of discipleship because the scriptures tell us. 
But, but it, it may be that the way that this dignified religious leader acknowledges um, Jesus' teacher and as well as how Jesus responds to him, that maybe the scribe merely sees Jesus as a way to advance, a way to be more prominent. Because this guy comes to him, culturally, this is how apprenticeship under rabbis worked. When you wanted to become, become a rabbi, you, what did you do? You hitched yourself to another rabbi and you learned from him. And you, and you, you, you learned and then you grew and, and, you, and maybe you became the next rabbi. And so maybe this scribe is thinking if only he could hitch his wagon to the teacher that astonished the crowds, if only he could hitch his wagon to the, to the teacher that learned, um, where he could learn some tips from, if only this guy could get Jesus' Rolodex, right? If only he could get the Rolodex of Jesus, then maybe he would be the region's next great teacher, Hey, teacher, I'm going I'm to follow you. I, I'm going to be your, I'm gonna be your, your apprentice. I'm going to be a disciple of, of, uh, of, of you as a teacher. You're going to teach me your ways. And then someday, man, I'm going to do things bigger and better than you. One day, this scribe may think, I'll have no real need of Jesus, but at least Jesus is getting me where I was hoping to land. Maybe Jesus is a means to an end for me. And, and Jesus shows us in his response to the scribe that this man at least needed to hear about the humble and low position that Jesus had chosen to embrace. We at least know that Jesus heard something in this man's address to Jesus, that, that, that at least Jesus believed in that moment what this guy needs to hear me respond is that, hey, this life that I'm calling you to live is one of lowliness, of humility not of getting to where you think you ought to be. That, that's why he says, and Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So if this man was seeking maybe affluence or seeking you know, to, to follow Jesus to get to this certain point, Jesus was gonna be sure at least up front to say, hey, listen, this is what this life entails. This is what this life looks like. It doesn't look like life in the most prominent places. It doesn't look like life in the, in the, in the highest, highest spots. It is a, a humble, willing, obedient submission to me as Jesus. And that's what, that's what um, Jesus seems to, to interact. And so we don't know. Here's what we don't know. We don't know how the scribe responds to this, do we? Don't you kind of want to know? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe something happened in him. Maybe he was like, I, 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 we, I think we could assume that the guy probably wasn't like, man, that sounds awesome. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but nowhere to land. Man, that, that sounds like the life I'm thinking. Probably not, though we don't know. But we're not intended to know. We're not intended to know. Um, I think the, the point that, that the text is trying to to, to show us is that following Jesus is costly. And so whether you, whether you choose to follow Jesus in that way or you choose not to, Jesus is being very clear, this is what following Jesus looks like. You decide. You choose what, what path you will take as a follower of me. But what we do know here, a truth that's very hard, that, that by the way, isn't only present in this text, it's present in other texts as well. What we do know is that Jesus has no issue I won't say that he has no issue as if it's some sort of emotive thing, but Jesus, more than just here, allows people to, to walk away who are not willing to count the cost. He, he, that we see that in the book of John. 
that people come to him, Lord, what, what must I do? This is what you must do. And then, and then they walk away sad. And so we know that what Jesus is telling us here is that, hey, the, this way of life is, is costly. The third thing um, that we see in this text, um, the, nature of, um, the nature of discipleship um, or this call to discipleship, thirdly, is a call to commit to him completely. A call to com- commit to him completely. Um, let's read verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. <laughs> this is where it's like, come on, Jesus. Like, just let the guy go to his dad's funeral. Like, just, just let him go. Well, we see that Jesus, Jesus calls for nothing less than complete commitment to him. That This text shows us that as a disciple of Jesus, which it says, this is one of his disciples, the text says, another of the disciples said to Jesus, so I don't know what all that means, and, and we won't get into it, but we won't, we won't speculate just a whole lot, we'll just see what the text says. We see that Jesus calls this disciple um, for nothing less than complete commitment and surrender to him, a heart that would be surrendered to him. So we see two tales of followership here. We see t- In this text, we see two tales of followership. Um, the first man really came to him too fast with this half-hearted commitment. This, this next disciple that we see really um, comes to him too slow with a half-hearted commitment. The first guy's like, I'm in. The second guy's like, hold up. So I don't know what all is at play there, but two very interesting, two very interesting angles to people who approached Jesus. And I, like I said, this one, the text says, is a disciple as opposed to the scribe in the first instance. And so there, there exists quite an abundance. This is very interesting, okay? Can we just talk about this for a second? And will you, will you understand that, again, what, what I'm saying here does not exist explicitly in the text, um, but there's a lot of cultural things that may be at play. Um, and, and so remember, the point of this text is, is I think, I think that the modern translators have titled it well, the cost of following Jesus. Um, that's, that's what kind of the, the, the summary of this section is, the cost of following Jesus. But there's also some things that a lot of very smart commentators who know the, the languages and know kind of what would have been at play here, there, there really exists quite an abundance of resources that offer some very interesting takes on what all might be at play here with this man who wanted to go bury his father. One, one of those interesting takes says, um, remember, stand, stand, as Kevin says, stand where the ice is thick enough to hold. Um, I don't know if the ice is thick enough to hold us here, um, but something very interesting that, that these commentators say is that, is that this man's father may not have even been dead yet. So, so read, let's read the text. Another of the disciples came to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So, so one of these is that this man's father may not have even been dead yet, but that this disciple was simply wanting to wait around on his dad to die so that he could get his money and then he would follow Jesus. So, so maybe him saying, I wanna bury my father is him just saying, hey, listen, I wanna be there when it's time to bury my father. I wanna be there for, for these final years of my father's life. What that also would have entailed, I'm not saying that this is, this is in this, what that also might have entailed is that when his father died, he probably would have received some money, wouldn't he? Would have received some inheritance. And so this man was, was, could have been motivated by more than just the, the simple, meaningful ceremony of burying his father, but he might have been and saying, and, and, and we see some of that, at least in Jesus' response, because 
We, we, we don't know what's going on in the mind of Jesus here, but Jesus does respond in this way, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So whatever it is, whatever it might be, Jesus is calling for this man to commit to following Jesus with everything he has. Leave behind worldly pleasures. Leave behind worldly treasures. Follow me. And we don't know how this man responds. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know how, how he responds. We're not given, and we don't know the motive behind this delay, ultimately. But Jesus, without losing any element of his grace or his mercy, senses that this man's commitment to Jesus was not sincere. He senses that because he tells him something very hard. Jesus could have said, hey, come back and see me in three years. I hear you, bro. Come back and see me in three years. The way that Jesus responds is follow me. And so it is with that, that we see the seriousness of the call of Jesus on the lives of those who would sincerely desire to follow him. So church family, this is, this is for us. This is, what, what, are, what are our lives as followers of Jesus look like as followers of Jesus? You, you're, you claim to be a Christian. Okay, what does Jesus say about the Christian life? What terms does Jesus set on the life of the Christian, not what terms do you set on the lives of a Christian, on, on the life of on your Christian life? What terms does Jesus set? And it's not conditional terms that if, man, you followed, like, here's the deal. We're going to see something in just a second that's going to hopefully give us some comfort in here as imperfect, even disobedient followers of Jesus, right? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm the most imperfect disciple here. And, and we're going to get comfort on that. But don't be mistaken that Jesus lays out what it is that following him looks like. And it is, a, it is a call to come away from the crowds. It is a call to count the cost of following him. And it is a call to commit to him with everything you have. And so in these two, in these two examples of the scribe and the disciple, we, we see at least two examples what often serves as hurdles to what Psalm 37, 5, is it Psalm 37, 5 says, to committing our way to the Lord, trusting in him. Psalm 37, 4 says, um, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. And it says a lot more, which I would highly recommend read. And, and this is where Matthew leaves it. He has this very small section in the midst of these great works of Jesus where, where Matthew records Jesus saying some very hard and challenging, difficult things. Again, lest we are tempted to just merely be fans of Jesus. And, and Matthew leaves it right there. He moves on to where we'll be next week where Jesus calms the storm. It's like, wait a second, I, I, need, some, I need some counseling from what just happened. And Matthew's like, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time there. We're going to go on to the next great works and miraculous works of Jesus. I have this quote on the, on the screen, but I'm, I'm reading a, a really fantastic uh, Puritan classic I, I would commend to you called The Bruised Reed by, by Richard Sibbs. Um, in it, Sibbs says that Christ refuses none for weakness of parts so that none should be discouraged 
but he accepts none for greatness, that none should be lifted up with that which is of so little reckoning with God. Christ refuses none for weakness, but accepts none for greatness. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that there's some sort of goodness or greatness that you've got to conjure up within yourself to be accepted before God? No, what God is seeking is, is, is people who, who know that they have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, that they are sinful men and women who need a savior, who need someone to save. He will, he will accept no one for greatness. But if you feel weak and you feel inadequate, may the grace of our Lord meet you in that place and say, this is right where I want you. One who, who, would, who would just acknowledge their need for a savior, for a redeemer. You know, it's, it's this same Jesus, the same Jesus of Matthew chapter eight is the same Jesus who just three chapters later not shows us merely components of discipleship, but reveals to us the nature of connecting ourselves to him in Matthew 11. Go there, let's just flip a couple pages over. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Look at the, can we just say that there, there, is no, um, there is no contradiction in Jesus, amen? Never. If, uh, if, if something seems to be contradicting in Jesus, uh, Jesus ain't the problem, you is, okay? There's no contradiction in Jesus. So Jesus says this hard thing to these men who, who, uh, who we suppose are interested in following him, but here's what Jesus says to, to those who truly experience and understand their need. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hey, Jesus' language here about yoke, I, I, I believe that this is what Jesus is referring to. It's, it's really the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is talking about his yoke of teaching as opposed to the, the law's yoke of teaching. That the yoke that the law places on people is really heavy, and the yoke of Jesus' teaching is light. Place my yoke upon you. And then Jesus here, uh, the, the great book that we have actually out there in the library, Gentle and Lowly, tells us that, hey, this is, this is a, a very key spot in the scriptures where Jesus reveals to us with his own mouth his heart. What is Jesus like in his heart? He is gentle and lowly. What a, what a beautiful truth. So the yoke of the teaching of Jesus, the nature of discipleship to Jesus, the way of life with Jesus is not burdensome. It is light. Now, Jesus is not saying that it will be easy to leave behind the things that you love as a disciple of Jesus, but he is certainly saying that there is a freeness to this way of life that you have never truly experienced. You think, you think you're free living life in your own way and under your own authority. Jesus is saying there is no freedom there. The freedom exists under the way of life that I have said is the way of life. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for just these glorious truths of, of your word. We thank you that even in the, in the challenging moments, the, the moments that are, are even kind of hard to wrap our minds around, um, Lord, you, you help us. Um, your word is something that um, is, is, is able to be understood, um, able to be comprehended. Though we can't fully comprehend who you are and your, and your love for us, we can't fully fathom all of those things. Lord, your word speaks to us in such a way that we can comprehend your word. Um, and so, Lord, would we just tether ourselves to it? Would you help us to tether ourselves to, to your word um, and what it is that you reveal to us in your word? Uh, we love you. Thank you uh, that, that, Lord, you've called us to this way of life that may seem hard, that may feel difficult, may feel challenging, but as you say, as your son Jesus says, um, that, that those who are weary and heavy laden under the pressures of living life in our own way, that we may come and experience a freedom and, an, and, and not in human terms, but an ease to our way of life um, that we can't experience anywhere else. We thank you for that and we praise you. We praise things in your son's name, amen.